1: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In Speaking of Race, Language, Identity, and Schooling Among African American Children, published by Lexington Books in 2020... There's an exploration of the linguistic practices of African-American children in an after-school program in Washington, D.C. Drawing on ethnographic research, Jennifer Delfino illustrates how students' linguistic practices are often perceived as barriers to learning and achievement and provides an in-depth look at how students challenge this perception by using language to transform the meaning of race in relation to ideas about academic success. Jennifer Delfino is assistant professor in the Department of Academic Literacy and Linguistics at the Borough of Manhattan Community College, City, new- City University of New York. I'm so glad her new book has brought her, brought her to our program. Welcome, Jennifer.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
0: Um, sure, uh, Zalman, if you don't mind me ca- uh, calling you Zalman. Um so i am a linguistic and cultural anthropologist and i study um i I specialize in the study of um linguistic racialization which is how um you know ideas about race and language interact to produce racialized identities um and i focus specifically on educational settings um, because that is where a um, good amount of the work of linguistic racialization is done education is very closely connected um to things like social mobility um to ideas about you know not just academic success but about ideas about success in the wider world um and i chose this particular study um just because i was always interested um in the topic of educational inequities um as a student myself as someone who's filipino american um and as someone who just noticed a lot of injustices and a lot of um, oppressive practices um, and i decided to continue um, with my studies as a professional academic um, and to focus specifically on this topic Uh, i went to graduate school in washington dc in washington dc the student population at the time from about 2007 to maybe 2011 when I did this research, um, was 78% African-American. Um, there was a lot of talk about, you know, the problems of achievement among African-American students and, um, you know, less emphasis on Latino students at the time, um, but you know, there seemed to be a lot of focus on what these student populations were and were not doing, um, and very little focus on the kinds of structural and educational inequities that they had to face in order to even show up at school on a daily basis. So um, I was also working with a nonprofit um, organization that provided free after-school and summer programs um, to such students, um, and. You know, this particular program's mission um, was very aligned with my mode of thinking on what challenges these students faced. So, for example, they didn't necessarily see a problem with the students. They felt that these students had skills and, um, you know, forms of cultural knowledge that could benefit the greater society. Um, And they really wanted to create programming that honored that um, rather than see them as not being good enough for the requirements of school. Um, So, you know, initially I had decided to try and do my research with high school students in District of Columbia Public Schools in a high school. So DCPS is the acronym for District of Columbia Public Schools that I'll use from now on. Um, but there was too much red tape and I think too much anxiety on the part of teachers who were kind of afraid that, you know, I might, yeah, you know, well-intentioned teachers who were afraid that, you know, not that I would make the students look bad, but that the knowledge that I would be bringing forward would possibly kind of expose them or make the students, you know, I don't want to say look bad, but um, put them in a vulnerable position which is really understandable um you know typically in anthropology we do anonymize studies and um protect the privacy of our participants but the, you know the teachers just didn't feel comfortable um well, actually one teacher did not feel comfortable. And one said, just do it under the radar. Ignore the red tape. And I, I was not comfortable with that. <laughs> 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 I don't think could do that. And I'd get in a lot of trouble. So I actually approached the afterschool, um, well, well, the nonprofit's um, executive director and founder and said, could I do this research here? And he said, this would be great. Um, I had already been working with the students for a couple of years. And um, I knew their parents. I knew the students very well. And I, I got a, a lot of support from everybody um, to do this study. Um, so, so that's how it started.
1: Terrific. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that that all worked out. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you write in the beginning of the book that you hope that, um, that this book, your book, um, will disrupt the, the folk logic of post-racialism and its ideological anchor Color blindness. What do you mean by that?
0: Okay, Um, so you know, today we live in a society where people believe that we have somehow moved beyond race. That race no longer matters um, when it comes to talking about things like academic success or the challenges that students face. You know, educational inequities. Um, professional inequities and so on and so forth um, and the ideological anchor, you know people really ground this idea in what they believe to be true which which is that they don't see race and they don't hear race that race does not at all factor into how they perceive you know the appearance, the linguistic practices the behaviors of people that they encounter on a daily basis um, when in fact what they're doing is you know uh, kind of, ignoring the ways in which they have been so deeply socialized into seeing modes of social difference that have a lot to do, will actually have everything to do with race, I would argue. And so things like, you know, saying that, you know, Black students' language is inappropriate for the classroom, right? That's a very kind of de-racialized way to describe Um, what has historically been perceived as the broken English of a racialized population. Um, I am hoping to show through this book that, that race factors heavily into how we perceive things um, like language and cultural difference um, and the opportunities um, for students who continue to suffer, um, you know, according to racially discriminatory practices um, that are not just about individual bias, but which are systematized and which are just, you know, just so deeply ingrained and embedded in the way that we practice things like, you know, teaching, um, discipline, um, providing opportunities, um, for young people. Right. When we talk about, um, what students deserve and what they don't deserve, or what they're doing and what they're not doing, um, and so really, I think the important work that I'm trying to do with this book is to show that you know race and racism don't reside with you know the people who continue to wear white hoods in the South. Um, you know, race and racialization is something that everybody does on a regular basis, even if you think of yourself as not seeing race. Um, or as not being a racist, or as not trying to, or as trying as, as as trying to be anti-racist. You know, we all have to be aware of the ways in which we sponsor institutional practices um, that racialize students and which can perpetuate structural forms of racism, such as, um, you know, uh, pushing out, you know, uh, black and brown students um, out of out of public schools.
1: Right. Right. And you mentioned that your um that your study was conducted in Washington, D.C. Uh, geographically speaking, where exactly did you conduct your research and what is the significance of that location in terms of the neoliberal racial project that's been uh, going on in Washington?
0: Uh, thank you for that question, Zalman. Um, the location is very important to this project, Um It was at the time and it continues to be. Um, Again, this was a very long time ago um, in terms of what can happen with, um, you know, cities turning over to neoliberal interests and gentrifying neighborhoods and things like that. So um, at the time of this research, I conducted um, my research in a part of Washington, D.C. that was located in the southeast quadrant. Um, which is one of the major municipalities of Washington, D.C. There's four quadrants. Um, Southeast was known um, at the time as a predominantly black neighborhood um, suffering from things like crime and poverty, right? It's the most deep, it, it was, and I believe it still is compared to the other quadrants, um, you know, the area with the most, you um, you know the highest rates of impoverishment and crime. Um, today it's different, but I'll talk about what was going on then. So at the time, um, you know, Southeast is is the historical product of um, you know black people being pushed out slowly um, of, of other parts of the city. Um, DC had historically been um, a black majority city for a very long time. Um, it had been a place where African Americans had migrated from other parts of the country um, at various points in history. Um, you know, notably after the two world wars, to pursue opportunities. Um, and it became a city where African Americans became very successful and were able to move up in a way that they weren't. You know, um, just speaking in terms of numbers in other cities, right? So you had a city that was populated by a very highly educated, you know, white collar African-American population. Um, That slowly changed. Um, As the city developed, you know, um, African-American people got pushed out into the most (laughs) underdeveloped and kind of undesirable parts of the city to live in. Um, Folks were, those folks were red zoned into neighborhoods that had you know, problems with like swamp drainage and things like that, right? Um, Southeast was created, um, you know, Southeast as we kind of see it today or at the time of my book was created um, in the middle of the 20th century, um, around the time that they started building um, freeways in and around Washington, DC, to kind of accommodate the white flight out to the suburbs so that those folks could come back in um, to do their work in the city. You know, they they raised through African-American neighborhoods, relocated everybody to southeast um, in temporary housing that was supposed to be temporary, (laughs) but which ended up becoming permanent. The freeway was conducted along the southeast border of Washington, D.C., where the Anacostia splits, um, you know, basically southeast off from the rest of the city. So now you have this concrete barrier that was isolating all of the African American folks that had been basically pushed out into that area, um, as a result, there's been generational poverty, you know, since at least the 1960s. Um, you know, in more recent years, the waterfront has become very um, gentrified and desirable, um, and not just for um, white folks, right? So, gentrification is kind of a complex process in Washington D.C., and that Black folks have also benefited somewhat from it. Um, And here I'd like to pause briefly and give a plug um, for my colleague, uh, Jessica Greaser's book, The Black Side of the River, um, which just came out with Georgetown University Press. She actually talks about um, blackness and gentrification um, in in more recent years in that area. And I think it's also a really important complementary study to understand the complexities of Black lived experiences in Washington, D.C. But I focused on the folks who had been ignored and left behind, right? Um, that area was described by Mayor Fenty, you know, the mayor at the time, as this kind of like dead area with nothing in it, even though there had been like lots of vibrant communities that had tried to survive and even thrive, despite all of this, you know, being pushed out, right. Like many neighborhoods, um, you know, many streets with networks and associations of, of people who had become, you know, what Carol Stack calls fictive kin, um, you know, so-called, um, You know, families, not based on biological blood or kinship, but, you know, out of, you know, supporting each other in these kinds of circumstances. Um, And so all of that was ignored. Um, There were plans to go in and redevelop the schools um, under the premise that, you know, Black students were not attending them or interested, right? So it was kind of developed in the interest of profit seeking charters. Um, And gentrifiers who wanted to, quote unquote, revitalize this area of Washington, D.C., and kind of turn it over to the interests of people with more money and power Um, at the time that was predominantly white folks. Right. So it was part of the neoliberal capital commercial development aimed at producing profit rather than infrastructure and, um, you know, social services for the public good which should include people like the folks who already live there.
1: Right. right. So this is where your your study is taking place. Um, And just to step back uh, for a second, uh, you mentioned that you're a Filipino American. I'm wondering, given that your study is all about race and Mm -hmm. how it it gets articulated, I'm wondering if your own racial identity ever came up with the students that were involved in your research.
0: Um, It not really, to be honest. It When it did, you know, I was perceived as white. You know, I was a white presenting young woman. Um, in the context of doing that study, um, you know, as I discuss in the book, my race as a my, my racialization and my own experience as a Filipina American who have, has had, you know, like who has felt othered at times? Who has been? Who has also benefited from white privilege? Because my mom is actually white. You know, um, the the privilege part was a lot more, I think, kind of visible and and kind of open to any kind of discussion or evaluation by the students. You know, for example, in my chapter where I'm talking about how they're voicing me <laughs> um, as like this this white lady who's really shrill and, um, you know, kind of as they called it pressed, you know, just like, just like overly concerned with like policing what they do. Right. Um, I tried to bring it up once and it, you know, to not, you know, to, to, to no success. (laughs) I was just this way they were like, Oh, aren't you, you know, and I also knew things like you know, hip hop, I was also trying to learn their language and their expressions. And I kind of teased them by kind of dropping in a phrase or an expression they use because it really amused them. (laughs) (laughs) So at one point they were, they were like, well, she's not white. She's light-skinned, you know, by light-skinned, they mean a very kind of light, maybe maybe even white presenting black person. And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not light skin, you guys. I'm I'm actually, and I didn't say Filipino because they didn't have a sense of that. I said, I'm Asian and also white. And they just like turned back to their activities and paid no mind to it. So, <laughs> and, you know, but I do talk about, you know, for the purposes of my study, like positioning myself as someone who has been racialized in particular ways would not have been it would have not honored their own, their experiences as, as black kids in, in the United States. Like, there's no way I could claim alignment with them as someone who had suffered similarly. Absolutely not. You know, I was this this relatively privileged person from American University getting this advanced degree. You know, I might as well have just been white. You know, like that's who I was in relation to who they were. And I think it was more honest. Um, you know, at times like I I spent my own money to buy food for the program or to buy them pizza when I wanted to, you know, recognize some achievement they had. And that was a form of privilege that other people in that neighborhood could not do. And so it's just, it's something, you know, that I, that I came to, it's a positionality I settled into because I felt it was, it was
1: definitely more honest. Right. And you argue that in, in the book that childhood is not simply a biologically determined phase of life, but is shaped in and through language and the experiences of race and class. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so I think this book has a, a pretty uh, specific focus on the social construction of Black childhood. Um, these students were, you know, racialized within particular understandings of aging and blackness. Um, and that's also mixed up with gender, um, in certain ways. So we're not just talking about children's, you know, developmental trajectories, um, apart from the context of race, class, and gender. You know, um, if you read other books, um, like the trouble with black boys, um, or I can't think of the. I'm sorry, I can't think of the other research. But black children are heavily scrutinized and kind of placed into age categories that are not necessarily even developmental appropriate. Developmentally appropriate for where they actually are. Um, you know, for example, you if you look at the criminal, criminalization of black boys and the kinds of sentencing that black teenage boys receive when they do you know when something happens like you know um they're dealing drugs or commit a crime or whatever they're sentenced as adults right so um you know black children are um aged out of childhood really quickly um due to systemic factors like that there's also the kinds of responsibilities that you know i think poor black children in particular have to face Um, a lot of the girls in particular had to um, kind of step into caregiving roles very early on just because you know you have parents or older siblings who are already out working um, and you know you had 12 to 13 year old girls watching their younger siblings and making sure they got their homework done and feeding them or at least making sure that they you know came to the after school program and things like that. Um, so they did not have they did not benefit from the same kinds of rosy childhood experiences that a white middle class child, could such as, you know, going to baseball after school or joining after school activities, they had roles and responsibilities that really aged them more quickly relative to what you might imagine the typical American childhood experience to be. Um, They're also criminalized in particular ways and treated as potential future criminals if they don't complete school, right? So boys dealing drugs, you know, girls having babies and going on welfare, right? Like they're exposed to these discourses and these potentials for being, you know, future drags on society early. And, you know, not just by the system, but, but from within the community, like these were real fears that parents had, I think. Um, So that's what I mean by that. Childhood is socially constructed. Um, These children were exposed to, um, You know, discourses about their being and their status in society that they tried to, that they couldn't control and which they tried to resist, right? In ways that were not often successful, unfortunately.
1: Right. And you talk a lot about African-American language. What Mm -hmm. is African-American language and how is it policed in American public schools?
0: Uh, That's a great question. So African-American language really refers to the forms and practices that originate from African-American lived experiences, um, you know, rooted in slavery um, and, you know, traceable all the way through particular contexts of oppression and isolation that followed, right? Um, Including... Um, things like gentrification. Um, African-American language. So in traditional sociolinguistic theory, where you're trying to look at trends of variation and change, and when you're trying to describe the things that are particular to African-American language, you typically um, set up a comparison between African-American language as quote-unquote non-standard, right, and what we imagine to be a standard or general form of English, which can be productive for certain things. Um, That's not the approach I take in my book. I see African American language as this very kind of, you know, uh, it's it's internally multilingual, right? It's not just everything that standard English is not, or what we consider to be standard English, because that's also something I call into question in my book. Um, It is, you know, if if we truly approach it as a reflection of African-American lived experiences, um, it's composed of standard features that you find in, quote unquote, standard English as well. Um, It's composed of things that young people take from popular culture and make their own. Um, It's composed of things that are specific, you know, kinds of experiences or realms of knowledge for African-Americans in terms of what you see, what you hear, and who you know you're talking to and who might be overhearing at any point, right? So it's just um, a set of practices and a way of approaching language that recognizes that, you know, you can be overheard and overheard at any point. Um, And so, you know, these kids come to school already knowing that they have to code switch to kind of preserve who they are and preserve the integrity of what they're trying to say and do in particular settings. Um, For
1: for listeners who are not familiar, could you just uh, describe what code switching is?
0: Code switching means that, um, you know, you, you switch between two or more styles of speaking. Um, it could be in the same, well, well, I mean, traditionally, I suppose style shifting would be reserved for, you know, something that takes place within a language such as English or French or whatever, but code switching is fine too. Um, but yeah, just switching between two or more varieties of, of language. Um,
1: uh, and could, could you give an example or two of, of a feature of African-American language? So people have a sense of what, uh, you know, what kind of thing you're, you're referring to.
0: Um, yeah, uh, so you could have particular, uh, you could have particular forms, such you know morphosyntactic forms, such as habitual be. Um, you know, I be at school um, every day at ten o'clock. You know, um, habitual B is not a replacement for the copula is. It it truly refers to habitual action, which is not something that you know people who don't speak African American language are likely to understand. Um, but it's it's actually one of those complex features of aspect that children learn to use later on in life. Um, so that's one thing. That's an example of a form. Um, an example of a practice is signifying or um, you know, capping or you know, the kids called it joning, um, which is basically ritual insults. Um, You know, people who aren't really socialized into that practice understand it as verbal aggression intended to start to start a fight. Um, It's really something that, you know, children can do to develop not just their verbal, but academic skills, right, to keep you on your toes and to keep you sharp in situations where, um, you know, um, words can be just as important at, you know, words can be important in defending yourself um, and defending what's called your social face or your ability to, you know appear a certain way um you know in public which is in their in their particular context to be tough <laughs> and not to take you know can i say can i say um can i say shit on this podcast yeah say whatever you like yeah <laughs> it's, fine. You could, it's very important to show that you 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 could um you could defend yourself from and not take any shit so
1: right right. i see and to go back to something that you you hinted at just before um what is standard english and what what do scholars mean by the term standard english and why is it such a, uh, a the concept such uh, so problematic
0: yeah so you know in in racial linguistics scholars of racial linguistics is where I, which is where i place myself really call that into question as a con- as as an imagined way of speaking that is connected to whiteness and middle classness that is really just designed to police the language of African Americans, Latinxes, um, Asians, people who are perceived to not properly assimilate into um, what we consider to be standard, you know, um standard for success and mobility in the United States. Um it is not something that actually exists. It's something, um, basically, if, if you were to actually list all of the features, if you, if you ask different people who believe in the idea of standard English to list all of the features um, of standard English and what it is, they wouldn't be able to give you a consistent list, which raises a red flag. All people normally do when they... Um, Talk about standard English is to say what it isn't. And curiously enough, it's all of those features of language used by people like African-Americans and Latinxs, right? Or accent features that, you know, accent again is is a subjective term, but say like phonological patterns, um, you know, of, of Asian immigrants or something like that. It's, it's not something that actually exists. Um, it's something that is designed to promote a culture of standard. Um, as one you know, linguistic anthropologists put it recently, Susan Gall, who, who's worked very extensively on issues of standardization in Europe, um, there is not much standard at all anywhere, just a, a heavy culture of standard, you know, meant to enforce and to police particular populations who are considered not to be, you know, um, properly um, integrated or assimilated by their own fault, which of course is not the case.
1: Right, right. Um, And um, you talk about structural racism in American um, and and how it relates to American schools. Um, What is structural racism and how do American schools act as a key institution for reproducing it?
0: Um, Structural racism is a concept that is developed to get around the idea that racism is this individual phenomenon produced by the particular beliefs of any given individual or their intentions to be racist. Um, Structural racism refers to the ways in which particular groups of people are, um, you know, basically systemically um, and habitually discriminated against despite the intentions of a, or actions of a particular individual, you know, so um, the fact remains um, that, you know, African-American and Latinx students are replaced, are placed in remedial um, educational programs by well-intentioned teachers who say these students need to learn how to speak English properly because the way they do it is inappropriate and it's going to interfere with their success. Those teachers are not trying to be racist. They don't identify as racists. They have every intention of helping these students, but they're participating in a systemic practice that, you know, um, basically disadvantages students from the beginning when there's no need to place these students in remedial programs such as special education, speech pathology, or English as a second language. The fact of the matter is, if we're talking about, you know, my book isn't about Latino students or Latinx students, but if we're talking about something like ESL, um, most of these students come to school, you know, a- unless they've recent, very recently immigrated, you know, um, fully proficient bilinguals, just not in the way that's defined as value-adding or as productive for certain situations or settings, right? So um, the fact that these students um, are perceived and heard from the lens of deficit, you know, um, even through the good intentions of teachers is something that, that exemplifies, you know, structural racism, because the fact of the matter is these students are going to be placed in these programs and always positioned behind white students who are perceived as having better linguistic and cultural skills for the outside world.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, in what ways were the black children you studied engaged in a project to challenge the racial linguistic ideologies associated with them?
0: Okay, so I think first it would be good to to kind of unpack what a racial linguistic ideology is. Um, so a racial linguistic ideology is one that um, ties together ideas about language and race. Um, so, you know, in, in the setting of the afterschool program, the two major racial linguistic ideologies were those of appropriateness, you know, what's appropriate for the academic setting, um, and what counts as articulate or proper speech, right? So I, I called it a racial linguistic ideology of articulateness, um, I hear I am drawing from um, scholars in racial linguistics specifically. So, you know, Jonathan Rosa and Nelson Flores talk about um, ideologies of appropriateness and how they mask ideas about race and deficit. Um, and then Sammy Alim and Geneva Smitherman have a book um, on Obama's language um, called Articulate While Black, which discusses, um, you know, the phenomenon of calling you know, black folks articulate when they're perceived to appropriately um, kind of adopt, you know, um, the the linguistic practices of, you know, white people and their expectations. Um, so anyway, these are the two operative racial linguistic ideologies. Um, students really tried to challenge the idea that it's not appropriate to speak what they called slang or street speech, um you know in the after school setting and so they would like use it in particular contexts when they were doing academic work and being competitive at who was smarter than who um they would also try to challenge you know the idea of who was articulate or not by voicing teachers as somehow weak or ineffective and putting on like this heavily kind of like you know uh you know, this, there was a process of linking particular language forms to particular types of people. So they would, you know, basically voice these impressions of particular types of white figures, um, who, um, you know, in, in African-American understandings are actually heavily inarticulate and kind of silly, you know, like shrill white women trying to gain control of a classroom or like, you know, um, white men, who you know are kind of effeminate and weak in some ways, so they do like these voicing impressions of white people, that really kind of flipped, you know, um, flipped the understanding of who's articulate and who's not. Um, they'd also you know do these voices of like black figures who they understood or were projecting as articulate in some ways, you know, like a street tough black guy who knows how to handle himself when he's being verbally challenged, or like you know, a black woman who's a very strong disciplinarian um, who actually can like recruit about, you know, like 30 kids who are up out of their seats, like running around, you know, get, the, get their butt <laughs> in the seats. So they, they really use these kind of interesting and carefully crafted linguistic practices to disrupt the idea that white people are, you know, not just the articulate or appropriate ones, but that they have the ability to make those decisions. You know, I think that they had like a very finely tuned kind of radar for power. You know, it's not just white people who who they weren't calling out the idea that white people are articulate or appropriate. They're calling out the idea that they even have the authority to make that call in the first place, if that makes sense.
1: Right, right. I hear you. Um, uh, I'm curious, in what ways did the Black children you studied blur the differences in Black and white styles of speech while at other times highlighting these racialized differences?
0: Um, So I think the – I'll go with the second part first. So I think just because it relates directly back to what I was just talking about. So, um, you know, with the voicing of the different instructors, right, right? white and black folks like these persona, I call them persona in my book or figures of personhood. um, You know, those really highlighted the, the contrast between what they understood to be white and black styles of speech. Right. So, um, you know, white speech is kind of like shrill, nasal, dorky. Um, this and that black speech is like very cool, calm, collected, street, tough, that sort of thing. Um, blurring the differences. Um, I have on the cover of my book, it's too bad that, you know, podcasters can't see, but hopefully they have access to an image. You know, there's this great illustration um, drawn by a group of kids in one of the summer programs of like what I call like the street, tough scientists, you know, in, in uh typically urban wear, like doing a with sunglasses and backwards cap, you know, and jeans in this lab, um, you know, conducting a science experiment and his, his little speech bubble, you know, is, is quite unexpected. It says, wow, we made a science experiment, you know, (laughs) which is like, you know, pretty standard way to express like Cool, you know, um, it's not at all, it doesn't show any features of what we would consider to be African American language, right? Even though the stance taking is very, you know, like African American young male. Um, So that's one of the examples that I point to. Um. And like I said, you know, um, you know, stylistically, um, in terms of how the students dressed and carried themselves and what they consumed, you know, you know, like preteens and teens are huge consumers of, of, culture and popular culture. You know, they didn't just listen to and kind of model, you know, black popular culture. You know, I had kids who were interested in Lady Gaga, I had kids who loved the movie The Breakfast Club. Um, they took interest in, in all kinds of, you know, popular culture and media that they saw probably mostly on TV at the time. I don't, you know, since they didn't really have access to the computers, except at the after school space, I would say the internet wasn't that, you know, wide for them at that time when I ended in 2011, but sometimes on the internet as well, or on Facebook, they just, they consumed everything and then, you know, kind of blended it into their own styles. Right.
1: Right, right, and and you note know that many uh, of the of the conflicts the students experienced in school in their you know in the regular school programs were with teachers who were themselves African American yeah. um, and that these conflicts centered on achievement ideologies the students found oppressive. Um, h- could you say more about that, please?
0: I don't think the students found them oppressive. I think they were oppressive.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: okay. So, you know, again, like teachers, you know, regardless of who the teachers were as people, right, they adopted the position of, you know, I call it in the book, the white listening subject, but really we're, we're going beyond listening to basically perceiving students in a certain way. So they adopted the position um, of the white perceiving subject, or at least applied you know, oppressive ideologies to characterize students' behavior and their words and their actions. If you don't focus on your homework and if you keep joning and fighting with your friends, you're going to end up just like, you know, so-and-so who's in jail for doing drugs, you know, that sort of stuff. And of course, I didn't hear this directly. This was reported to me by students. Um, You know, Black teachers would also use very heavily racialized characterizations of who the students were and how they decided to dress and present themselves. And, you know, I don't know, I, I can't say, I never interviewed them, I never talked to I can't say if they were truly interested in helping students or if, you know, there were some also class differences within, um, you know, kind of the, the, you know, black communities who came into Southeast to either do work or who live there or whatever. But there were definitely some tensions in that regard, you know, like we had students or, you know, staff who, you know, they were, they they got a, a, an undergraduate or graduate degree at Howard. Right. And they would come in and have conflicts with the staff who were from the local neighborhood. Right. Um, and say like, oh, this this person's unprofessional, and you know um, they don't speak properly, and they're modeling incorrect language for the students. And so there were class tensions in that regard um, that I overheard because you know it, I wasn't in the mix in that regard. You know, it wasn't it wasn't my fight, right? So both sides would, sides would kind of come to me and explain. I was just like, oh, you were God, Switzerland. I this. Yeah, I was Switzerland, <laughs> right? Um, you know, and and again, like that's a complex issue because I think when it's within the black community, there's other things going on. Um, we can't just say that that someone is selling out or that they're, um, that they are being racist. Right. Like, you know, there, there's, there's, People are differently positioned within conditions of oppression, and these are just you know the different reactions playing out. But unfortunately, it worked to the disadvantage of the children who always took on you know kind of the brunt of of those frictions, right? So they were the ones who became heavily policed.
1: Um, yeah, I'm curious. Were, were any of these arguments between? You know, like specific uh, adult figures, uh, 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 African-American adult figures within the after school program that you studied. Were any of these arguments ever in front of the students? No. I, they weren't. Well, yeah. uh, I, I, I'm wondering also, like, I mean, were students aware, not necessarily of, you know, a particular argument, but the basic kind of fault lines, the basic um, tension or or, or or competing perspectives of these two, let's say, groups of African American adults within the program, and did students ever kind of yeah. reflect on that or, or, yeah. or comment no, on that? I would say
0: yes. Like, I never interviewed them about how they felt about different teachers, but they'd say things and act in certain ways. Like, they created very strong alliances with people. So, with you know, folks from Howard, you know, there's labels too, like, you know, the the people from Howard were bougie. They were, they were bougie assholes
1: who, like bourgeois,
0: middle, very (laughs) middle-class
1: entitled.
0: That's right. Middle-class entitled. Um, don't understand the values and the priorities of people in the local community. Right. Um, they would just ignore them. They would deliberately act poorly. (laughs) The (laughs) children would ignore them. Oh yeah. They would ignore them. They would like try and rattle them on purpose, make them uncomfortable, (laughs) you know, and they had, and this is where race, you know, you know, lines of race aren't so clear. Right. So I was, I, I held favor with the children in way that in ways that some of those Howard folks didn't just because I didn't, (laughs) you know, like I would, you know, try and get on their page, um, more so than the other instructors, but the students had clear alliances and they knew who was on their side. Um, so I think that no, they wouldn't you know, come here to this podcast and tell you what I'm telling you about those frictions. But they would say something like, I really didn't like, you know, so and so, um, because they treated me this way and they just don't understand, you know, uh, they treat me like I'm bad, that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. So they, they get it. Um, they don't hear what goes on behind the closed doors at all times, Um, but again, you know, some, some things become very public in African American communities, which is again, another like kind of discourse style. Um, if you have a problem with someone and you want to make alliances and you want to make your position known, you have arguments out in public so that, you know, like people get on your side. Um, so, so yeah, so conflict in some ways is very public compared to what we might expect according to white middle-class standards. (laughs) So maybe they were exposed to some of these fights, but I never saw it.
1: Right. Right. And did <laughs> students, the students you studied, did they use uh, racialized stereotypes about black students in their, in their discourse and their conversations?
0: Uh, they At- did when it came to things like reading and, mm-hmm. um, Yes. And they did. They did. You know, it's, that's a huge part of, of the, you know, practice of joning, where you're deliberately trying to insult someone, you know, to like win a contest, to win a verbal contest or to win, you know, like a personality contest or whatever you're doing. So yeah, like your shoes are dirty and you're poor and your mom, you know, cooks cold hot dogs which is a whole thing like you know a it could mean you don't have electricity and b it could mean your mom's stupid <laughs> right <laughs> so, uh, that that actually started a physical fight i was really confused but i was like what does that mean and then i thought about it and i was like okay that's like a double whammy um but yeah so they relied on that for like verbal games but also in you know kind of more you know context of non-play it's like you know Uh, the students were asked to read aloud, you know, it was the most kind of effective and well, I would say time efficient way of instructors kind of assessing whether or not students could read at grade level. And so they were put into these, you know, very publicly humiliating circumstances um, where they'd have to read aloud in front of everybody. And in order to, I think, kind of mask the fact that they either could not read or felt insecure about not reading according to grade level, they would, they would, you know, um, you, they would weaponize these stereotypes to characterize other students in the group so that they could take the focus off of themselves.
1: So like putting down other students for allegedly not being able to read properly or something.
0: Correct, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, like this
0: a huge stereotype, you know, African-American students as Ill- illiterate. That's not something that they came up with on their own. That is something that, you know, comes from you know, the outer, you know, again, the institutionalized subject position of hearing from the perspective of a white person, like a student can't read at grade level, therefore they're illiterate, ignoring all of the ways in which African-American students do have literacy skills that aren't actually measured or assessed by the school system.
1: Right. So they would tap into these (sighs) racialized stereotypes about African-Americans to use them in sort of strategic ways within yeah. this academic um, you know, program to defend themselves or to gain status or maintain their status among their friends.
0: Well, not just to gain status among their friends, but, you know, to, to, I think kind of sidestep the fear of, of actually, you know, being seen as illiterate themselves. They cared about, academic achievement, and they cared about performing according to grade level, but they were terrified because of these expectations and stereotypes that were put upon them to to perform in certain ways. And so, I mean, I think they did what any child would do in that situation, which is to get it as far away from them as they possibly could. And that was to, to, you know, kind of shove it off on other people.
1: Um,
0: Yeah, it was really sad.
1: Yeah, and I'm curious, how did the, the, the staff or the adults who were seeing these types of expressions, how did they respond to the, these, these uh, situations?
0: Um, you know, it varied, you know, so a lot of times they would, you know, I would say, you know what, everybody knows how to read. <laughs> <laughs> it's like let's just drop it, you know, um, let's focus on reading. But most of the adults would just, you know, treat that behavior as disruptive and say, get to reading. Um, I think is the long of the the short of it. Um so um yeah, they would just they would treat that activity as disruptive. It was never really handled or discussed, unfortunately.
1: Right. right. And um what did you learn from the written assignments and art projects of the students in terms of the students' discourses about social justice?
0: Yeah, so um well, discourses about social justice—they were very kind of globally focused. You know, you would expect these kids from, you know, inner southeast Washington, D.C. to be very kind of isolate. You know, according to particular stereotypes, um, even well-meaning academics see them as like isolated and not as exposed as they could or should be, right? Um, but they were very—they were um, global citizens, Salman. They were global citizens. They were global citizens. Um, you know, I—I I did cover in the book, so. Uh, black communities in Washington, DC are very politically engaged, um, at, at the local level, by which I mean, DC politics, the vote for mayor is very important to these communities, vote for local representatives. All these folks took off of work and stood in line to vote every single time, every single election. And then of course I did my research at a time where Barack Obama was elected president. And so, you know, that those communities were very energized by that. And I think, um, you know, continued on with the trend of being politically active. So, I mean, it, it, it passed down to the children, but they weren't just like focused on the local stuff. They were concerned about, you know, the tsunami in Haiti, um, you know, that affected people. They were concerned with poverty as affecting everybody and not just black people, not just people in Southeast, Um, you know, they were, they were aware of world events, like, you know, whether I'm pretty sure they were probably exposed to it in school, if not by their parents. And so they took it seriously and they produced like these wonderful kind of like, you know, art projects and and writing projects that not only showed their awareness to and concern, um, you know, for, for the global, you know, um, but also what I call their translingual sensibilities, which is their ability to use, um, you know, different different kinds of speaking and, and writing styles in their projects to try and, you know, meet the expectations of multiple audiences, you know, whether it's their teachers or people in the world that they imagine themselves appealing to when they say, hey, you should pay attention to what's happening in Haiti um, or, or their friends, right? So they, they had like... Um, I I used a perspective, um, you know, put forth by uh, Nelson Flores, who's an applied linguist at University of Pennsylvania, um, and who founded the concept of or or the field of racial linguistics, you know, with with other scholars. Um, the, the, The perspective of language architecture, that these students are really crafting bits and pieces of what they know to produce like you know, kind of like this, this linguistic architectural thing in their writing. So whereas, you know, their proficiency might be assessed as lacking, you know, within a traditional framework of looking at their writing prog- pro- uh, projects, I really saw them as, as intentionally crafting something that was not supposed to be pure academic language, you know, for the purposes of the messages they were trying to convey.
1: Right, and well, there's so much more that we could talk about. Your book is really um, rich with so many ideas, but we we do have to end uh, shortly. So I'm I'm curious. So the last question: What do you hope readers of your book take away from your study?
0: That's a really good question. Um, I well, <laughs> I should be honest. <laughs> I hope they do take something away. Um, you know, I did, you know, admittedly, it's, it's full of a lot of, you know, kind of academic concepts and things that probably need more background research, but I'm hoping that they take away, um, uh, you know, one that race and language are, are very important to understand, you know, and in, in terms of how they affect particular people, um, that race has not disappeared. And I think that it's, it's um, really designed to challenge liberals and progressives in particular who feel like they're doing particular kinds of work but may not be, um, especially with the idea of helping these students um, linguistically succeed, for example.
1: Right, right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
0: Thank you, Salman. It was a pleasure to be here.
1: That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.